Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by TunnelBear, the simple privacy app that makes it easy to access a more open internet and browse privately. Go to freetunnelbear.com and use it for free. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANADALAND at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Saudi Arabia executed 47 men this year all at once, including a cleric. They called the men terrorists. Others called it a slaughter of the monarchy's political enemies following a rigged trial. Saudi Arabia killed 97 civilians. A Saudi-led airstrike into Yemen, according to Human Rights Watch, killed at least 97 civilians when they bombed a crowded marketplace. The attack is considered unlawful by international law, it may have in fact been a war crime. So, should we sell them weapons? Here is the argument in favor of selling Saudi Arabia Canadian-made light armored vehicles. Massive tanks, machine guns on the top. Here's the argument in favor of doing so from Stefan Dion's office. What they argued was that this is a necessary thing in order for Canada to maintain leverage on Saudi Arabia. What are we going to do with that leverage to make the world a better place? Well, Stefan Dion's office noted 
that current Canada-Saudi relations have led to 16,000 Saudi students studying here in Canada, which, they said, will help to promote a greater appreciation of Canadian values, including the importance of diversity and gender equality. They actually made that argument. More pragmatically, Stéphane Dion's office said, look, if we drop the contract, we will simply hand the contract to another non-Canadian and possibly more ambivalent provider. If we didn't give them weapons, somebody else would. And that somebody may be somebody who's, you know, not as upstanding a global citizen as Canada. So that is the Liberal Party's position now that they are the Liberal government. Here is what they had to say about it beforehand. These are all quotes from people who are now working for the Liberal government before they were doing so, when this arms deal was an arms deal between a conservative government and Saudi Arabia. And these quotes I've read before, but they bear repeating. We've allowed an arms sale to trump human rights, said Roland Paris, who is a professor at University of Ottawa. Now he's a foreign policy advisor to Justin Trudeau. Here's another quote. Saudi Arabia has bought the silence of Western countries by awarding them lucrative contracts. That's what Jocelyn Coulon said, Jocelyn Coulon being a political analyst, journalist, and international research expert, and Jocelyn Coulon said that before taking a job as Stéphane Dion's advisor. When talking about the conservative government's deal with Saudi Arabia, Gerald Butts said, principled foreign policy indeed. I think he was being sarcastic. Jerry Butts, of course, is now Justin Trudeau's top advisor. That's what they all said then. You won't hear them saying that now. You will not hear them coming out against the Saudi arms deal because it is their deal. It is not, as the liberal government led us to believe, an inherited deal, a grandfathered deal, a done deal. That's what Stefan Dion called it, a done deal. The conservatives made the deal. What can we do? We're not going to back out of it. It wasn't our deal. It was a done deal. No. We know now that that is not true. The brunt of this deal was okayed directly by Stéphane Dion. Most of the $15 billion deal, he had the power to stop. Instead, he approved it. We know that because of the Globe and Mail's reporting. We know that because of Globe and Mail reporter Stephen Chase. This is the Liberal government's first major scandal, or at least it should be. Stephen Chase joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Nicholas, Adam, Martin Scherer, John McGMA, Jean-Vive Russell, Eric Martinez, Emma Prestwich, and Sherwin Arnott. Sherwin, why did you decide to be awesome? Because the interviews with journalists and editors give us a really cool window into what they were thinking, and sometimes what they weren't thinking. And Canada Land just makes me less... This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. 
This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by TunnelBear, the simple privacy app that makes it easy to access a more open internet and browse privately. It's very easy to use TunnelBear. You just choose a country in the app, you turn TunnelBear on, and then you watch your bear tunnel your internet connection to your new secured location. It's like you're surfing the internet from a foreign country. Why would you want to do that? What is the point of surfing the internet as if you were an American? Well, you can see the prices that Americans pay for things are often very different prices than Canadians pay for flights and and for products. So you can avoid price discrimination. If you're surfing the internet through public Wi-Fi, you can secure your connection by using TunnelBear. Instead of using the open connection of a coffee shop or airport, you are now protected because everything that happens on TunnelBear is encrypted and they keep no logs of your behavior. So it's a powerful tool for your own safety and privacy. You know what? You might use it just because you believe privacy is a basic right. You simply want privacy. TunnelBear has apps for iOS, Android, PC, and Mac, plus a Chrome extension, And it's free. The first 500 megabytes are free. Go to freetunnelbear.com, start using it. You don't pay anything until you bust through that 500 megabyte cap. You don't have to give them a credit card. Check it out. It's kind of fun to use. It's very useful. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. It is a very fun and easy and simple way to get a website up and running quickly. And the easiness doesn't end with the creation of that website, with the publishing of the website. You get your own URL, everything's set up. But the maintenance of that website, they have tech support 24-7, and you don't have to muck about under the hood. Everything has been tested. Everything has been worked out in advance. You're not building it from scratch. It's been beautifully designed, the back end, the front end by beautiful designers. You just plug in your own information, and you've got a website. Your site will look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't have to do any coding at all, but you can if you know how to and want to. It's intuitive. It's easy to use. You get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code CanadaLand. You will get 10% off of your first purchase. Stephen, how did you come to this story in the first place? It was back in in 2014 when the Conservatives announced this deal. And at the time, we wrote a story, pretty perfunctory story, uh, pointing out that uh, the contract had been signed and pointing out that Saudi Arabia uh, had a a, a bad reputation for human rights. But it wasn't until uh, the Raif Badawi Badawi case in the end of 2014, early 2015, where we really started to take notice of this. Here we had... A man, his family had taken refuge in Canada. They live in Sherbrooke, Quebec. 
and a man who whose crime was a heresy apostasy was was questioning the existence of God and and writing it to that effect who was sentenced to 10 years in jail and you know hundreds and hundreds of lashes and we ha- we had this going on while we were still digesting what this deal was all about uh, and so it, it seemed really incongruous that we were doing uh, business with this country and that just raised a lot of questions like you know let's learn more about this deal what does it entail and, and those simple questions we couldn't answer. The government was essentially blocked us at every turn. There was no transparency in terms of exactly what we were selling them, what the shipment dates were, how this how this was justified under export control laws. We sort of got you know shut down at every turn. So then we started to ask more questions. We started to uh, submit up access to information forms. And start to sort of probe and dig and, and pull. And we did get some luck because we started to find out, for instance, that the government hadn't even done a human rights assessment of Saudi Arabia in years, uh, yet they'd signed this deal. We got information under access information that showed sort of assiduously the government had courted the Saudis. The ambassador at the time was so happy about the deal, he wrote an email back to Ottawa that just said in big capital letters, God love the labs. So this was interesting. I don't usually see diplomats talking like that. And so every time we pulled, um, more information came out. And that's why the story kept going. We'd found that they'd run the uh, deal past the Israelis to see what they thought of it. And we also found what, and this proved to be very important for what happened in April, we found that when they asked about whether they can get sort of an advanced green light, they were told, and this is all in writing by the Export Control Division, this deal isn't approved and guaranteed and sanctioned until the export permits are approved. We cannot give you those kind of assurances. You're going to have to put the export permits applications in, and then we're going to have to do the assessment. And the assessment, of course, is the human rights situation in in Saudi Arabia. Is this justified? Is this a risk for human rights? And so on and so forth. So the stories kept popping out one by one, and we did about, I think, about 15 stories before the election. And then in January, uh, this last year, you had the biggest max execution in Saudi Arabia in decades, and one of the people killed was this popular cleric, this, this Shia Muslim cleric, uh, who was a real critic of the House of Saud. So immediately we went to the government. We said, you know, we see Mr. Dion criticizing these executions and yet proceeding with the deal. And so that we thought, so please explain the sort of how you balance these off and please explain what's going on here. And so it, it sort of, in a sense, fueled the story again and, and, and prompted us to ask questions and continue to, to push and to, and to prod and stuff. And, of course, information kept coming out. We, we learned about the fact that these were not, uh, not only were these armored vehicles, but they, in fact, were being equipped with uh, medium-gauge machine guns and anti-tank weapons, cannons. There was a human rights assessment report being prepared that they weren't going to release to us. And so it just it just kept going. And often the government, I think, was the author of its own misfortune. And by the government, I also don't just say the liberal government, but the this, this, the permanent government, the, the bureaucracy, the global affairs, which really blocked us at every turn. What had happened is Daniel Turp, who's a professor at the University of Montreal, and he had launched a lawsuit, an appeal, notice for application and review at the federal court, challenging uh, the government's the government's decision to allow these exports and in fact saying it was um, against the law to allow the export to issue the export permits for this application so what happens is uh, the government actually replied to Terp's lawsuit with with way more than we expected 
they came uh, through with a, a document that was a uh, stamp secret and was, in fact, the rationale for approving the export permits. What we learned was that, um, in fact, Mr. Dion was the one who signed the export permits. For months and months and months, we'd been asking the government, please give us the export permits, please give us the rationale behind the export permits. And time and time again, the answer was uh, not we haven't signed them or uh, we're not there yet. It was uh, we will not comment on this for reasons of commercial confidentiality. But uh, lo and behold, Mr. Terp dropped in his lap is a copy of the rationale for signing the export permits that includes Mr. Dion's signature at the bottom. So in fact, the decision to green light uh, the bulk of this $15 billion sale was made by Mr. Dion and not, as everybody had thought, uh, by the Conservatives. Well, why did everybody think that? Because the Conservatives announced the deal in 2014, and every time uh, that we discussed the uh, rationale, uh, we weren't told it hasn't been signed yet. We were told that you can't have it. During the campaign, when the when Justin Trudeau was, was challenged on this, will, will you support this deal? Uh, as I remembered, he said, well, I, I, you know, it's a done deal. Was that, was that his language? He talked about this being a, a contract between a company and, and, the, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, so sort of try, effectively distancing Ottawa from it, and also saying these are really just Jeeps and that we will honor the contract. This, this took place roughly a week before uh, the Liberals were elected, and they knew they were, they were in a position uh, to, to do very well at that point. So, yeah, Trudeau, I remember saying that they're, they're, they're just Jeeps, not mentioning that they're Jeeps that are more like tanks and have machine guns on the top. But the whose phrase was that? It's a done deal. Where, am I, where, where do I remember that from? That comes from Mr. Dion. And uh, that we got to go to January 2016. We've just seen a mass execution in Saudi Arabia. Mr. Dion goes on TV and he talks to uh, Rosie Barton at CBC. And he says the deal is done. The deal was done. Deal is done. Uh, we can't uh, we can't reverse that. So you've been on the story for a while. I mean, we we kind of touched it a little bit. We talked it from a very different angle, just in terms of the Griffin Prize and mm-hmm. this this wealthy Mr. Griffin who's got this poetry prize and he's also got an interest in in, in this arms company. And after uh, our our story by Michael Lister, it came out on that Griffin cut off his ties to that arms company. During the election, it kind of almost became an election issue, but there was that sense like, well, what are we going to do about this? It's, it's uh, you know, Trudeau tried to downplay it, and there was also a sense that they could kind of evade it being, you know, uh, their problem because this was this was something that the conservatives put in place. And then, and then we actually had that kind of like said in a very definitive way by Dion later that it's a done deal. And then when you try to get more clarity on it, it's it's commercial, you know, confidentiality. So what your reporting revealed is that that was really a lie. I mean, that wasn't true at all. Well, I'm not going to accuse the conservatives, or sorry, the liberals of lying in this case. Um, what I'm going to say is that the, this they had a far more substantial role in ensuring this deal went through than we believed before. The decision to approve the export permits is a is an important step in make, in basically sanctioning or giving assurances to a deal. And it's not the contract alone that does that. That's that's our position at the Globe. Okay, I appreciate your modulating, you know, the strength of the language here. They said it's a done deal. Was it a done deal when Dion said it was a done deal? Well, I think it depends how you split, you, you uh, parse the language. There was a contract signed between the federal government and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but that doesn't prejudge the export permit process. 
we're the government often is fond of boasting that we have one of the best arms control regimes in the world. That process, determining whether or not these are suitable to ship, is separate from any contract. The government can't go signing contracts, in this case, the Defense Export Corporation, which is called the Canadian Commercial Corporation, and then simply circumvent the export approval process, or else it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. So in this case, we do know from uh, access to information requests that we received last year that, in fact, the previous government was trying to uh, seek assurances from the export control folks at DFA that this is a done deal, right? This is, this is okay. It's going to pass for sure. And what they were told, and this is in writing, we have this in, in emails, is the uh, Debbie Gowling of the Export Control Division told the government, listen, um, there's, I don't see any red flags to begin with, but there will be no assurances, no guarantees that this deal is approved until we see the export permit applications. Circumstances may have evolved. Uh-huh. So she tells them that in 2013. She reiterates that in 2014. So that, that again, it bolsters the idea the export approval process is a separate process. You can't just sign deals and then uh, skirt the rules that the government has long boasted are some of the best in the world, and which say that if you're going to be shipping to a country with a poor human rights record, you have to scrutinize the situation really carefully, and you have to determine there's no demonstrable risk that these goods could be used against civilians, and you must look at the situation with regards to whether it's involved in hostilities, such as, of course, Saudi Arabia is right now in Yemen. In Yemen, yeah. And, and uh, I, I mean, what I took from your reporting was that it was entirely within Dion's power to stop this deal. Yes, it is. As a point of process and also in terms of should new information arise about their hostilities and human rights abuses, that case could have clearly been made as well. He has the power to suspend permits or not to issue them in the first place. And that, doesn't, that isn't um, affected by any contracts the government signed. Now, you mentioned uh, Terp as an academic, but he's also – he's not like a neutral – player in the political scene, right? No, he's a former PQist. He was a block MP and a PQMP, uh, sorry, member of the National Assembly. And he um, has previously taken the government to court, for instance, on their the Harper government's uh, sort of exiting from the, the Kyoto Accord. So he has a history of uh, taking things to the courts. And his wh- what's he motivated by here? What's he trying to prove? Well, his argument is that he thinks that this is a country with an abysmal human rights record where um, it's very likely that, that things we, that Canada sells them will be used in ways that we don't approve of and, in fact, will violate human rights, and that there's no way the government can justify this under its export control rules. Does that case have a chance of winning? I don't think so because the export control regime is largely a, a creature of cabinet. That is, the, the, the Canadian government, the cabinet has the authority to, to uh, lots of, it has lots of wiggle room if it wants to, and the export control regime rules are not written in law. There are regulations attached to a, a export control law, and I don't think they're that strong. But other countries have, have basically come out against dealing and selling arms to the Saudis and, and have made it a point of law that they're, they're forbidden to do so. And Well, you've seen, you've seen expressions of this. One of the sort of the background stories is that uh, the human rights situation in Saudi Arabia, uh, critics would argue, has been eroding over the last year, two years. Now, you could point to situations such as women being allowed to vote in municipal elections there. These elections, incidentally, are responsible for 
the, their counselors that are elected responsible for things like waste disposal and so on. But on the whole, if you talk to groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, they would argue things have been getting worse in, in Saudi Arabia in the last year or two. And so what you've seen around the world is responses to that. You saw the members of the European Parliament uh, vote urging their member countries to consider bans. You've seen the Dutch parliament uh, urging their government to to do so as well. In the case of Germany, they have rejected several transactions in the past, I would say two years, including tanks and a particular kind of rifle. And you saw the the Flemish parliament um, in Belgium also announce a ban on uh, weapon sales. Mm-hmm. Take me back to the, that moment where Terp gives you this information you know, you'd been working this story for some time. It's no surprise why he would approach you with what he'd found. Sometimes when we're reporting things, we know something to be true. We just don't have the proof. Did you know that this was true or was it a surprise to you to learn that Dion uh, had, had had signed? I was completely surprised. I had assumed that this had been taken care of under the conservatives because that would surely have locked down the deal, Right. But I was surprised that it wasn't. And what was really interesting was the timing. So you have Terp come out in the press in late February signaling he's going to bring this lawsuit, signaling he's going to challenge the export permits. And so obviously the government of Canada had some advance notice of this. And then the day he files it, March 21st in federal court, is the exact same date on the memo submitted to Dion to, to make sure the permits get pushed through. So he gets this on March 21st, and then Dion signs on April 8th. So the timing was really interesting because it would have been quite remarkable if the government had come back to Turpin and said, uh, you know what, um, these export permits haven't been signed yet, so you know, you're challenging our export permits, and in fact it hasn't been done yet. So it was, the timing was very interesting to me. The fact that this hadn't been secured under the Conservatives because it's a, it's a sort of a central p- uh, part uh, and parcel of making sure these deals go through, as I talked about with those uh, those access to information emails we discovered. And so, yeah, I was really surprised. And I thought um, that meant that, that the Liberals had affected, taken ownership of this by being the ones to, to assess the situation, decide that this was an acceptable shipment and, and, and stamp approval on that shipment. Yeah, I think it, uh, because of what you reported, it becomes fair to consider this it's now the liberals' arms deal. It's not. It's not the conservatives' arms deal. Uh, and you bring up an interesting hypothetical there that had it not been approved yet, we may have been having a different conversation. Because right now the conversation is about the dishonesty and whatever light exists between the way that the liberals are presenting this as a done deal and and the reality. And is there hypocrisy there? Which the Globe Mail has said that they, that, that liberals have been acting uh, hypocritically in this. But instead, the conversation might have been, should we do this? The actual ethical conversation, are the jobs worth giving arms to a murderous, misogynistic country that's involved in in foreign hostilities? And who knows what these Canadian-made uh, LAVs might be used to do? And, and sh- should we be in the business of doing this? We've never really had that conversation. No, we didn't. And and. To be fair, I mean, the Conservatives are the one who's who sought this contract out and signed it. The Liberals are the one who approved the shipment of arms. So it's I think there's part and parcel responsibility there shared. But it would have been it would have been a very interesting dynamic if you had Mr. Turp come to the press and reveal that in fact the uh, stamp of approval, the green light 
the sanctioning hadn't been uh, hadn't hadn't been applied, and in fact, you know, it was an open question: should we allow these things? I, I really need to stress that what Mr. Dion signed on April eighth is very important. He basically, if you read the document, it's a rationale for why we should do this and why there's no real human rights concerns that should stop it, which I think uh, critics would argue is, an op- is, is more debatable than that. The government, um, when they consulted, uh, at least on paper, it says they only consulted government departments to see whether there was human rights concerns. They consulted the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Department of uh, Industry, which is now called Innovation, and the Department of National Defense, all of which uh, you might very well argue are institutionally in favor of this deal because they all played a role, particularly D&D and, and global affairs, in ensuring it came together. In fact, that, that's part of the backstory of, of the reporting over the last 15 months. So I take your point that they were cherry-picking who they asked about human rights abuses, but does that mean they didn't know about Saudi human rights abuses? Was that, did, did Dion have that information at his fingertips when making this decision? Well, what the question they were, at, they were supposed to be asking is, can we demonstrate that there is no reasonable risk that these weapons would be used to commit human rights violations. And that was the question they were supposed to answer. And so the consultations took place with those parties. And the only answer we got from that in the memorandum, which was, of course, released with Mr. Terp, was that they had no evidence, which critics had argued is not quite the same meeting the same test as what the Export Control Act or the Export Control Rules call for. So I think that the charge of hypocrisy is well substantiated when you kind of compare the positions that these people had before that they, they were in power or before they were working for, for the liberals with where they stand now. Uh, these are some of the most vocal critics of Canada having this kind of relationship with Saudi Arabia. I think it's it's different when you get into power because you, you face the prospect of uh, being accused of killing jobs. That is the real factor here. You have uh, – we're in a weak economy. Uh, economic growth has not really rebounded like we'd expected. And especially s- centered in southwestern Ontario, you have 2,000-plus jobs that could be said to depend on this. We've never been given a clear sense of how, how you know, they depend solely on this or not. But I think any party that gets into power has to, has to wrestle with that. And the, conservative, and the liberals certainly have, uh, have, have closed the book on that debate. So I just want to see this from your perspective as, as the journalist who has this bit of information from Terp, which – was shocking to you, completely upset the narrative, I think represents the first real potential scandal for this new government that has been really enjoying an unprecedented level of uh, popular support and, you know, photo opportunity and viral moment after viral moment. And here you've got something that undercuts the narrative of the Liberal Party. This is maybe the most incendiary news story in Canada at the time. Take me through what it was like for you bringing that to press, knowing that Terp has a position on this that he's hoping for you to carry water for him as well. What are the things you've got to juggle and, and, and what's it like running these stories as you as you have for the Globe and Mail? And, uh, you know, talk about the response from the Liberal Party as well. Well, I guess for us, it's just been a question of just continuing to pull at this thread. You know, going back to 2014, when this deal was signed, it was very strange the way it was announced. The press conference in London, Ontario, which most of us participated in by, by conference call, they wouldn't even name the country. They called it, they said, the, the client or the customer. It was only the Conservative Party, which was so tickled pink about it, that let us know that this, in fact, was Saudi Arabia. So it's been a really frustrating uh, uh, process over the last uh, 15 months, trying to get information out about this. The Saudis refused to talk to us. 
General Dynamics, which is the manufacturer in London, Ontario, has largely refused to discuss this at all. And the government of the day, whatever stripe they were, has largely not lifted a finger to uh, to sort of, uh, in terms of transparency and openness here. If Mr. Terp had not filed that lawsuit, I'm not sure we would know this. And that is really, for me, uh, one of the most interesting developments in this case is that uh, somebody who has sort of a history of being a bit of a uh, professional gadfly, uh, in fact, managed to pull something out of the government that they've been unwilling to discuss for the last six months. And, of course, the previous government had been unwilling to discuss for, for uh, you know, 12 months prior. So it was really interesting to and surprising for me to see uh, what a court case could, could do. And I do believe that it wouldn't have come out if it wasn't for, his, uh, for the lawsuit. We, you know, don't choose where the truth comes from that, you know, there's this, I, I think, idea that sources should just be purely motivated by wanting to bring truth to light. You, you take the truth from wherever it comes. And the truth in, in politics often comes from people who have partisan uh, positions or, or ideological differences. They want to make their case. That's fine. You, I think the responsibility of a journalist is just to make sure that it's true. Um, but it's radioactive what you had. I mean, there's a, it's a really hot potato I have to imagine that this was something that got the attention of David Walmsley, that everybody at the Globe and Mail knew that this was this was a heavy story. And, and, and to the Globe's credit, you've been pulling that thread consistently, and I think it's become a very strong point of reporting. Tell me about what whatever you can about uh, blowback, you know, the, the early days of a relationship between the Globe and Mail and this government, I'm sure that the that uh, the Globe is. Uh, I, I'm not going to say the Globe and Mail is influenced by what the Liberal Party thinks of the Globe and Mail, but I'm sure they're very aware of how that relationship uh, is progressing. What's it like just navigating a, a story like this? Well, I I mean the the government has been pretty. I mean professional. They, uh, you know, there's no screaming matches. There's no yelling. There's no. Uh, they've been pretty up and up in terms of um, the level of politeness and so on. In terms of answers, though, what I've been frustrated by, and this is the same as the last government, is what they tended to do over the last six months is instead of, often instead of answering the case or the questions, they kick them to the department, which is kind of like, um, you know, being sent to purgatory. The, the government, the department has a far slower reaction time. It's line, it often produces these anodyne, boilerplate lines and they don't answer the questions. So for much of the six months, uh, what I'd found is Mr. Dion's office would kick it to the department and the department would come back with essentially mush. Mm-hmm. And that was very frustrating. And so that was largely the dynamic was, and then there are exceptions to this, but ask the minister's office, ask the Department of Global Affairs, gets kicked to the Department of Global Affairs into huge email chains where people say they're working on it and they're going to get back to you, and then you get, like, pablum. You get nothing. So none of your carefully constructed questions, none of the information you're hoping to get out will come out. And that, that's been the biggest frustration in it. Obviously, the government is not happy with, uh, with the idea that they're being, they're taking, they've taken political ownership of this story, uh, sorry, of this, um, of this contract, and they're not happy about that. But I generally... It's been it's been a, a a bit of a tussle with the bureaucracy, and of course, many many journalists have, have probably experienced the same thing, where you just get kicked into uh, the department uh, communications uh, unit, and uh, you know you it could it take days to get answers, and the answers aren't even worth waiting for. Well, since this became the liberals' problem because of your stories, uh, Stefan Dion did make himself available to the editorial board, and it seems like 
he's thrown his body over the grenade and I'm, I'm, he's trying to survive it himself and maybe he is surviving it. But if he had the power to stop this, then Justin Trudeau had the power to stop this. And it's not as if Justin Trudeau was not aware of this file. Why do you think this, the, the questions haven't gone up that high? I mean, have they effectively siloed this? Is it right to pose these questions to Trudeau? I think it's right too. Um, I think that we keep getting re-erected to Mr. Dion because it's his – I, I guess the assumption is it's his responsibility to handle this and handle this mess. What happened on April 8th is the, the Liberal government, the existing government of Canada, assessed the risk and the problems with exporting weapons to Saudi Arabia and decided it was okay. That's what's important about that. They didn't need to do that. They have complete power to, uh, to suspend permits or to rescind permits or not to allow permits. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly Mr. Trudeau's uh, to answer as well. And it's, it is largely being sort of redirected towards Mr. Dion. But I find that Mr. Mr. Trudeau has sort of, he sends to, he settled on, on this narrative that we're honoring the contract and it would hurt our good name abroad. Uh, that's, that seems to be the, the line he returns to uh, when he gets asked about it now. And if he if he ever gets evidence that they're they're doing anything they shouldn't, he'll he'll stop the contract then. Yes, and I guess the, what critics have asked is, you've seen a lot of things take place in Saudi Arabia in the last two years, the crackdowns in Saudi Arabia, the mass executions, prosecuting a war in Yemen where the United Nations the United Nations panel is accusing you of human rights violations, and so often the question I get from from people who follow the arms trade is. If not this, what will it take? What will it take before the government would uh, would suspend permits? And and I'm not sure how much of a smoking gun they're going to need before they would do that. It's not clear. You you can call me a cynic, but I I doubt pretty strongly that we're going to see this contract be cancelled. Does that sound uh, like a an extreme position for me to take? I imagine that they're they'd want a pretty clear cut case that there is a abuse taking place uh, before they would do that. But there are m- many instances you can find of right now where the laughs we've already made are being used to fight the war in Yemen. And of course, the Saudis have been called to take in a task by the UN uh, for human rights abuses there. In this case, it's, it's because of the indiscriminate bombing of civilians. But uh, it, it, it would seem that we'd already passed a line there, but I guess we haven't. Well, if you're in that territory of saying, yes, there are human rights abuses, yes, there are hostilities in a, in a foreign country in Yemen, but at this point... It involves bombs, not the labs that we sold them. You are in pretty dicey territory, I think, from any kind of ethical perspective. Like, we're going we're gonna to wait for that? We're going to wait for that before pulling that trigger? I mean... That's what makes the story so interesting. I mean, there is two sides to this. You have jobs, right, in southwestern Ontario and elsewhere across Canada that are dependent on this. And so it's, it's um, I think it's a really interesting debate. And it also reveals something about uh, us as a country, right? Stephen, let me ask you. This failed to materialize as a serious campaign issue. Didn't seem to resonate with people as something that they were willing to ask of, uh, you know, a party that wanted to form government uh, or, or, or make demands. Uh, and you could see the liberals were already kind of hedging then and not taking a strong position, uh, suggesting strongly that they would do nothing to stop it. And now, even with this new information, and again, just to summarize, the information is not only that this government is arming Saudi Arabia, who we know are guilty and responsible for terrible human rights abuses. That is a point of policy of the country is a completely sexist, misogynistic country. Beyond that, you have exposed a serious misrepresentation 
from this government. And I don't think we could find any fault with the Globe and Mail for failing to serve this story and give it the space in the paper and follow up. Uh, quite the opposite, I, I think. Do people care? Does this story have traction with the public? I think it bothers people. I think it it, it, it does contrast with their notion of what it means to be Canadian. But I think there's definitely, I mean, I could I could argue that they, they're pretty split on whether we should be uh, selling or not. I mean, if you look at the the only gauge or monitor I have are the polls. And depending on how you ask the question, there's a very few people who actually would support this contract outright. It would range between 20 and 30 percent, meaning there's 70 percent or you know, 80% who don't, to sort of, if you flip the question on should human rights outweigh jobs, uh, you get 60% saying, yeah, human rights should outweigh jobs. So I think Canadians are, are really divided on it. I think that few people in Canada like Saudi Arabia or like the fact that we're dealing with Saudi Arabia. I also think that we're, Canadians are scared. We have a weak economy and that... Um, Every job counts, and high-value manufacturing jobs are something that you don't want to let go, even if it means selling to a country who uh, you really have nothing else in common with. Yeah, but those polls are only reflective of people who are even engaging with this question. And you know, as we discussed earlier, we never had a national conversation about this. Yes, there's two sides to the story: do we favor the jobs, or is it okay? to put uh, arms in the hands of a country like Saudi Arabia, that's an old ethical question. It's a kind of a classic ethical question. And I think that in Western civilization, we have since maybe World War II come to the conclusion that if you can kind of prove abuse beyond a certain threshold, no, the jobs aren't worth it. And we all kind of agree to that. And we have laws about that. You know, that's a debate, like, like that's an established territory. I just am kind of wondering whether people even have an appetite to wrestle with this stuff or consider it part of their universe or anything that they really care about being done in their names by their government. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Mr. Dion and Mr. Trudeau will not be standing there at the factory in London, Ontario, cutting a ribbon when the first lab rolls off the line. That's your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of CanadaLand Commons will be up on Tuesday. The next episode of Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Syndication of Canada Land to campus and community radio across the country is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.